This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. You have found us. My name is Richard Serrett. Let me introduce the band. Uh, Tim Spreen, our technical producer, is here. Uh, also joining us on bass guitar uh, is uh, a young man, Sebastian. Hey, Sebastian, welcome aboard. And uh, Albert Vinzel, of course, my story producer. Uh, you'll notice I'm not calling Albert Albert the intern anymore. Albert has now graduated from Ryerson University. It, that's a four-year program in radio and television. So congrats to Albert. And, of course, thanks to Tim and Albert for all their hard work on the program. Uh, Tim is uh, busy taking some, uh, I believe, some additional credits in English literature at the University of Toronto this summer. So I am surrounded by very bright young people here at The Conspiracy Show. Uh, We are doing an HOA again tonight, so if you want to catch the live stream, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. Let me spell the last name. Although it pains me to have to do that 15 years in the business, however, um, 15, more like 20, my gosh. Uh, Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett is the Twitter feed, and the last name is spelled S, as in Simon. Y, because I love you. R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. At the uh, top of the feed, you'll find a tweet containing tonight's HOA link. Just click on the link and you're in. And uh, you get to see me in studio and our guests uh, throughout the program. Uh, Just a reminder that the Conspiracy Show app is now available for download at iTunes and Google Play. It's a free download. Uh, So be sure to download it. Take the Conspiracy Show with you wherever you go. And again, thanks to Sharon Forster, our app developer. I keep threatening to bring her on uh, the program, and we will do that. But what I think is we need a few, um, maybe a good month of having the app out there and available so people will have a chance to download it, try it out, and then maybe once you do that, you'll have questions, suggestions. So, uh, Albert, why don't we see about bringing Sharon Forster on maybe like the first week of, uh, of August? And uh, she can walk us through the app, and then people can ask questions and so forth. Uh, once again, I invite you to get on up to the website, richardserrett.com, where Albert and I have posted some news items we think you'll find interesting. And last week on the program, I mentioned that a Russian official wants an investigation into the Apollo 11 mission, and we've uh, posted that story there. A bit of The headline is a bit of a misnomer because he, the, the Russian official is not disputing the fact that uh, Apollo 11... Uh, was successful and that they landed on the moon. He's not calling it an out, out-and-out hoax. What he'd like to know is where did the artifacts go, the uh, the video, uh, the moon rocks, and so forth. 
So he'd like an investigation into that. Uh, German beekeepers have called for a nationwide ban on cultivating uh, GMO plants. They, uh, the call by the German Beekeepers Association, representing some 100,000 beekeepers, comes after Europe adopted controversial legislation in enabling member states to opt out of the cultivation of GMOs. Uh, and uh, they, they fear, I, I guess, that the, uh, the GMOs are responsible for the demise of bee populations. They are being decimated, not just in Europe, uh, but here as well. And uh, many scientists are pointing to a particular type of pesticide, not GMOs in particular, but a pesticide as being responsible. Uh, and finally, a Forbes magazine... You'll find this story also posted at richardserrett.com. Forbes magazine gives us a very rare glimpse inside a billionaire's doomsday bunker. Check it out. Uh, now, uh, of course, we've been very uh, busy at our house, the Serrett household, playing, paying very close attention to the situation in Greece for obvious reasons. We have family and friends there. Uh, I just wanted to mention, no matter what happens on uh, July 5th, uh, obviously, our hearts uh, and uh, prayers go out to the uh, the people of Greece, uh, and they are calling. They've called for a referendum, which will take place uh, on July fifth. And uh, regardless of the outcome of that referendum, Greece is in for some difficult times. If they vote yes to the terms of the bailout, I fear it's just more of the same austerity and recession or depression uh, for another five years. If they vote no, ultimate, ultimately, I believe this will lead. Uh, to a Grexit, a Greek exit from the euro. Uh, and this will mean, of course, financial chaos, at least in the short term. But I think if Greece goes back to the drachma, the currency may be greatly devalued and there will be some hyperinflation. We saw this in, in Argentina when they defaulted. But at least there's a potential for growth. The tourists will flood back. Investment will flood in. Another five years of misery, perhaps, but at least some light at the end of the tunnel. Resolution. Uh, because, as I've mentioned on this program, I believe the euro is a failed experiment, and eventually it will collapse. So better to get out now. Uh, what will be interesting to watch, however, is whether Greece pivots to the east and Russia and China. And uh, should they accept funding, emergency funding from Russia, this will not sit well with uh, NATO and uh, uh it has been suggested by people like Paul Craig Roberts, the former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury under Ronald Reagan, who's now very outspoken against U.S. foreign policy, uh, and, and Gerald Salenti, uh, writing about this recently, uh, that if Greece should pivot to the East, Syriza, this is the governing party in Greece, the, the leadership of Syriza uh, could fall victim uh, to some unfortunate accidents. Uh, anyway, I'm working on getting Gerald Salente or Paul Craig Roberts uh, on the program uh, soon to discuss this. Okay, uh, back in April, we had another study. Uh, this one published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, reporting that the vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella, the MMR vaccine, does not bring an increased risk of autism. Uh, this study, involving some 95,000 children over an 11-year period, uh, and again, the study found that there was no harmful association between the MMR vaccine and autism. Uh, now, this debate, for those of you keeping score, really got started in earnest back in 1998 uh, when an esteemed medical journal published a paper, Lancet, I believe it was, uh, published a rather startling conclusion that the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine administered to millions of children across the globe each year could cause autism. 
And of course, this study was led by the uh, physician, Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Lancet later retracted the study, said it was based on faulty data. Uh, and uh, Wakefield was uh, supposedly widely discredited. And he's since left the United uh, Kingdom and is a, a resident of Texas, where he continues uh, to sound the alarms. Uh, but the debate is clearly not over. There are millions of parents who continue to be fearful of uh, not only the MMR vaccine, but other vaccines. Uh, we had, of course, a recent whistleblower at the Centers for Disease Control who confessed that he and others deliberately omitted data concerning a possible link between autism and uh, MMR. Then, of course, there is uh, Dr. Stephanie Seneff, a senior research scientist at the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, who says her research has found a relationship between vaccines and glyphosate, otherwise known as Roundup, which, of course, is present in some GMOs. She's, she says there is a a relationship between vaccines, glyphosate, and autism and other neurodegenerative diseases. So as I say, the debate rages on, and that's where we're going for the next 40 minutes or so. My first guest says autism is a major public health crisis of unequaled proportions. And his book accuses the federal government, or he rather, accuses the federal government of refusing to acknowledge it as such and having a corrupt and morally unsound relationship with Big Pharma. First, noting the dramatic rise in cases of autism in the United States and in Canada since the 1970s, Autistic Indifference then discusses, discusses the rampant misuse and dangers associated with vaccinations. Additionally, he argues that the Center for Disease Control has lied to the American public by presenting inaccurate data on annual flu deaths and along with the vac vaccine safety data link has buried damaging research on the perils of vaccines. John E. Micah was born in 1959 in Mount Clements, Michigan, has lived most of his life in upstate New York, graduated from Liverpool High School in 1977 and since has been, um, well, he has one child who was diagnosed with ASD in 2000, and he is the author of The Autistic Holocaust. John, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good. How are you, Richard? It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Very well. Thank you. Uh, likewise. Uh, ASD, what does that stand for? Autism Spectrum Disorder. Autism Spectrum Disorder. All right. Correct. And, uh, you and, have... uh, right now, uh, what the CDC recognizes uh, the uh, ASD rate to be is one in every 68 children. And what's interesting, Richard, by the way, is that this figure, uh, not even 30 years ago, was like close to 1 in 10,000 children, maybe 4 or 5 in 10,000. Right. The, the proliferation rate is uh, exponential. Wait, right. And they have acknowledged that there is something environmental going on, but they're obviously not uh, willing to make that, uh, that link between vaccines uh, and, uh, and, and, and autism. Now, well, they're not going to. Uh, that's an admission of guilt, and that's something our government and the CDC refuse to do. They do, uh, they do say in the uh, previous uh, uh, 2012 uh, Oversight Committee on Government Reform, uh, Director Colleen Boyle uh, went as far as to say it's a public uh, health concern. Uh, and she was questioned by uh, some of the members on the panel and said, why is this not a crisis? Uh, and and they, they refused to re recognize this as an epidemic. Uh, and it, it clearly is more than an epidemic. It's a pandemic. 
So we have a, a misnomer. Our nomenclature is wrong by the government officials in the health industry that we're really supposed to watch out for our health. And you said the debate earlier is uh, far from over. Oh, it's far from over. And that's why I wrote this book. My son's autistic. And when I got into writing this book, I, uh, as I got digging in, uh, I turned up a lot of stones and opened up many cans of worms. And I put that in my book. So... Well, um, let, let me get you to weigh in on th- this latest study. This uh, now th- this is um, uh, this came out in April uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and we're talking about nearly a hundred thousand uh, children uh, over an ele- sort of in an eleven-year window. And here they are again asserting that there is no connection, no correlation between the MMR vaccine. And, uh, and autism. Uh, first, let me get your, your take on, on this study. Do you see any problem with this study? Well, I have not deciphered, I have not disseminated the study. But I will tell you, it's one of many that has been put out by the IOM, Institute of Medicine, that discredit this theory that there's anything to do uh, with vaccination as autism. Uh, it, interesting, interestingly enough, uh, there's documentation in the vaccine court uh, where there have been awards for millions of dollars to children who have received vaccine injuries uh, and resulted in sealed cases that uh, we, we won't see the outcome of um, because there's a problem. And, uh, you know, we got to look at the verbal evidence. Uh, look at Congressman Burton. Uh, his grandson, uh, Christian, received nine vaccines in one day, and uh, shortly thereafter, autism. So, uh, and this is not a single-out case. Now, he happened to uh, be chair of the Oversight uh, Committee on Government Reform, so he's in a position to bring nine hearings uh, to the uh, public's, uh, you know, attention. Okay, John, I've got to jump in here. We've got the music percolating up. It's time to head into a break. When we come back, we'll uh, continue to discuss right. autism and the possible link uh, with vaccine. John E. Micah, author of The Autistic Holocaust, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. Don't forget to uh, register at the website, richardserrett.com. And we are joined by John E. Micah, the author of The Autistic Holocaust, the reason our children keep getting sick. And John is the, the father of an autistic uh, child. How old is uh, your, your child, uh, John? My son at this time is 28 years of age. Uh, he wasn't really officially diagnosed until July of last year. Uh, so he slipped through the cracks, as many children do. Um, in fact, when he was 14 years of age, he told me uh, he was living his, uh, with his primary caregiver, my ex-wife. He told me that he had Asperger's syndrome. I never heard of it before. And uh, even Dr. Weldon of uh, the previous OCGR committee hearing didn't see on his rounds. More and more of these children uh, are popping up every day. And, and do you, why do you uh, believe that there is a link between, uh, in your son's case, uh, his uh, Asperger's or, or his uh, aut- aut- autism and the vaccine? Well, I noticed developmental uh, disorders or delays in uh, growing up social, communicative, and behavioral problems. Um, and, you know, our story is different than some other people's. All right, we didn't grow up in a family full of love and trust and uh, Norman Rockwell painting. So I believe my son went undiagnosed for a long time, but he did receive his normal complementary shots. Of the, uh, as recommended by the Advisory uh, Committee on Immunization Practices, as many children do. 
so I didn't have the benefit of sitting in on his entire uh, uh, baby well visit, and he received every single shot. Uh, and I noticed a difference at a very early age. And I thought my son uh, just was slow. I didn't know. Um, and there are other factors involved. You know, I, there's a lot of things I didn't know. When I wrote this book, there's a lot of things I discovered. Uh, you know, basically, um, with my son, uh, you know, I can't tell you that the vaccines caused his autism. I can't do that. Uh, but many courts have in many cases. Uh, and I suspect there's a cause environmentally. Um, and, you know, I can attribute that to the fact there's been many cases anecdotally. Yes, well, it's, it's true. I mean, we, we cannot dismiss anecdotal evidence. Uh, and you were talking about courts. Uh, there is, of course, the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. Uh, and did, did, did you uh, apply to the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program for uh, an award or... Um, or, or what? Well, that's the beauteous part about it, Richard. Uh, we never applied. And in fact, uh, parents have three years to recognize that their child is diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder or they're outside of that window. Now, the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program has over $2,400 million in it to compensate these uh, children who are injured by a vaccine and uh, the parents who have to spend uh, $3.2 million on average lifetime cost, lifetime care cost, to maintain uh, one autistic child. And that's if they get the best care. Now, my understanding is, and they've awarded some over the last uh, 30 years, I believe it began back in 1986, and uh, thus far they've awarded over $3 billion to to vaccine victims. However, um, I think to be clear here, just because the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program is awarding uh, uh, money, that's not nece- that in and of itself is not you know scientific evidence that there is a link. We should be clear about that, correct? That's, that's uh, fair. No, no, I don't think we should. Uh, I mean, we can draw a conclusion here. I'll take Bailey Banks as an example. Now, <clears throat> Bailey Banks received a baby well visit shot. The next day, his eyes were rolling back in his head. He was brought to the hospital. He got MRIs and was confirmed by two uh, neurologists that he had ADEM, that's acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. Now, that's basically an autoimmune deficiency syndrome that attacks our uh, brain tissue, which results in encephalitis. And so um, what what was determined by Master Abel in the vaccine court is that uh, his uh, shots resulted in his ADEM, uh, which resulted in his uh, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, which contributed to his autism. So and there is a case right there where they, the, the lawyers were very smart, and they didn't go out and say that the vaccinations caused autism. But this child and his, his folks were awarded $810,000 and uh, $30,000 to $40,000 a year for the rest of their lives. Hannah Pauling was one of the first cases awarded. And uh, she got a 1.5, her parents did, $1.5 million award and uh, $500,000 a year for the rest of their lives. And uh, that, that case was sealed. So uh, it's based on science. And, you know, quite frankly, Richard, the established science uh, of anything, you know, you can look at any case in history. That's what we've got to look at. Uh, it, it puts the burden of proof on those people who say there's a problem. 
this is this is not the way it is because there's many studies that say that these vaccines are harmful. There's over 5,000 studies on record that say these things vaccines are harmful. And so I think it's a question of the delivery system. I don't think it's ne- necessarily the vaccines are bad, although we can sit on either side of that fence and argue that point all day long. But look at the damage these things are doing. And in many cases, they do result in death for the children, and they do result in neurological disorders. And, um, you know, and as you mentioned, the verbal evidence is out there. Scientifically, you're not going to get anybody to stand behind that argument unless they want to lose their job, their funding. And look at Wakefield. You mentioned him earlier. He got excruciated, crucified, because he made one comment. He didn't say the MMR vaccine. i got to correct you on this. He didn't say the MMR vaccine causes autism. He says we've got to take a closer look at it. This threatened profits. And when he suggested the single uh, dosage of the MMR vaccine, uh, the government unilaterally withdrew the single importation license. So this created uh, an outbreak of measles. He got blamed for that. And that's utterly bizarre in his own words. It's not his fault. It's the government's fault. And, uh, and that vaccine, by the way, was banned in Canada, and it was still used in the U.K., so there's a big story about that. I write about that in the book. I write about Wakefield and some other scientists who've been uh, excruciated, you know, uh, crucified. And so, uh, you know, we, we t- you talked about GMOs. Yes, there's a link there, too. You know, diet is very key to autistic children. So, um, well, well, since you mentioned uh, GMOs, I, I was going to save this to later, but let, let's, uh, let's talk about um, have you been following the work of Stephanie Seneff at, uh, at, at MIT? And, and uh, she says that there is a relationship uh, and she's not a medical doctor. I mean, she she works in a, an artificial intelligence laboratory. Uh, however, she does she it does cross over into the uh, arena of biology, uh, and she says that there is we need we're missing the the, uh, the the relationship between. It's not necessarily just the vaccine. It's the vaccine working along with the glyphosates and GMOs, which is Roundup, uh, that are creating this perfect storm for neurodegenerative diseases and autism. Well, I think we got to look at when uh, GMOs were first introduced. Uh, you know, and there, there was no safety testing on these things. They were simply introduced, and uh, Michael Taylor was the guy that got them going with uh, Bill Clinton. He signed that into law, and they, they were generally recognized as being safe, GRAS. Uh, and you know, guess what? They're not. Uh, and in 64 countries have banned these things. In India, over 200. Maybe in 50,000 farmers committed suicide because the crops failed. Uh, some of these farmers drank this so-called herbicide, this glyphosate, to kill themselves. And this is not anything you're going to hear from mainstream. Uh, but it's out there. It happens. And there is a relation. There is a correlation because uh, autistic children have an uh, immune system which is compromised. And Wakefield brought that to light. It's been proven by other scientists. Leaky gut syndrome. Uh, yeah, a leaky gut syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, you know, we talk about Crohn's disease. My own father cured himself of Crohn's, uh, Crohn's disease by eliminating these uh, genetically modified food products from his diet. You mentioned the scientists that I'm not aware of. There's a lot of people, scientists, that I'm not aware of. But uh, I think anybody that wants to know anything about GMOs needs to go to the uh, Institute of Responsible Technology, which I mention as an organization in my book. Jeffrey Smith is the uh, foremost leading authority. I know Jeffrey, yes. yes. On Jeffrey Smith. Sure. Uh, yeah, foremost leading uh, authority on uh, GMOs. And you've got to go to his site. 
uh, Institute of Responsible Technology. And we go to the grocery store, we don't have a choice. You know, we're not giving labeling, you know, we're fighting that. But Monsanto's or Mon Satan, uh, <laughs> who controls the food supply and the uh, manufacturers, uh, you know, grocery association and multinationals pump millions of dollars into funding at campaigns to say these things are safe. Well, here's the, here's the problem. If we get – even if we get food labeling – and I'm, I'm all in favor of food labeling. We, we have an, you know, an educated consumer. That's part of democracy. It's a, it's a major tenet, I think, of a, any democratic system. You must have an informed uh, a populace. But even if we have food labeling, you can't avoid corn. It's in everything. It's in your maple syrup. It's in it's it's in everything. You, <laughs> I mean, how do we avoid it? We are swimming in a sea of, of GMOs at this point. I disagree. There's a lot of things we can do and take out of our diet. Uh, if you go to uh, non-GMOshoppingguide.com, you can put an app on your phone, and it'll give you uh, derivatives of other things. You know, corn, soy, canola oil, uh, cotton, alfalfa. Uh, yellowneck squash and pineapples from China. These are the major ones, and there's derivatives of these things. Like you mentioned, corn is not in everything. Okay, it certainly isn't in vegetables. It certainly isn't in fruits. It certainly isn't in nuts. It certainly isn't in you know. Stan Kurtz uh, had a son, Ethan, uh, by simply by changing his diet and adding some antibiotics. And he's not a doctor or a scientist, but he took interest in his child because the doctors told him his son would never be better. He, he would have to live on. Uh, you know, the fact that uh, his, his son would need care for the rest of his life and, and, and be uh, basically uh, challenged for the rest of his life. Right. And so we can take steps, and I address this in my book, and I link, I link scientific studies in my book. I don't just make this stuff up. You know, I spent over 10,000 hours putting this together. John so, E. Micah is with us, the author of The Autistic Holocaust. Uh, the father of an autistic child. Uh, well, he's 28 now. Uh, can you give us a sense of, of how uh, how he functions? I mean, is he? Uh, how does he get on? All right. Well, first of all, he was determined to be disabled at a younger age, like 14 years of age. He was taken out of school. He lived at home. He was afraid to leave the house. Uh, you know, we're talking social and communicative uh, challenges. Uh, we went through a period of time, maybe 12 years, when it was very difficult for him to even acknowledge a phone call because he doesn't like to talk on the phone. So uh, this is serious. And I thought I was a bad father. I'm not a bad father. I'm a very good father. And, you know, we're left in the dark on many things. Uh, you know, this is all recent, recent stuff. And, you know, we're being told by these agencies that say, oh, there's no such thing wrong. we got study after study. But what about in the cases that we do? Now, there's many studies that link vaccinations and autism together. There's a, there's a plausible uh, correlation, and there's, there's room for doubt. There's a possibility. So, you know, we right, have to right. I mean, delivery system. That, that's right. It's, <laughs> it's not an all or nothing uh, um, situation where it's, you know, we have to ne- necessarily look for causation. If there is a relationship, I think that merits further investigation. Because well, that's we, the whole thing, and we don't look at that. We really don't. Uh, and there's so little that we, we really know as far as science is going. We're using a delivery system for our vaccinations that is, is over 150 years old. I'm going to tell you right now, Richard, scientists are going to look back on us 100 years from now, as they did with Semmelweis, the guy that said 
wash your hands when you go from post-mortem autopsy cases to delivery. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a humongous death rate. Mothers were dying, children were dying. And all he said was wash your hands. Well, I can see it down the road where people are going to say, what were these people doing? Um, and right now we're coming up with vaccines that you can put in a Band-Aid, you can put in lettuce that eliminate all these harmful toxins that go into our body. There, no, what good can become of a, something that's 100% toxic to our body? to make us feel better. All right, John, we've got to take another time out. We'll come back. I, I do want to talk to you about the uh, the whistleblower at the uh, CDC, uh, okay. which caused quite a storm, Dr. William Thompson, I believe. Uh, we'll get to that and much more as we discuss autism and a possible link with vaccines. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, do not go away. Welcome back, John E. Micah, the author of The Autistic Holocaust, The Reason Our Children Keep Getting Sick. And he joins us live from the uh, the beautiful Finger Lakes region of the Empire State. Uh, John, uh, back uh, well, it was over a year ago. Uh, William, Doctor William Thompson, uh, revealed that he and uh, the co-authors of a uh, a study that was published in the journal Pediatrics omitted data. Now, uh, well, Doctor Thompson works for the uh, the CDC. Uh, and he admitted that he and his colleagues omitted data which suggested that African-American males who received the MMR vaccine before age 36 months were at increased risk for autism. He says decisions were made regarding uh, which findings to report and after the data were collected. And uh, he believed the, the study protocol was not followed, that the, the, the data was deliberately omitted. Uh, have you what, have you heard any uh, you know what is the latest on 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 that revelation which caused quite a quite a stir at the time obviously well you know there's been quite a few people that have spoken out and and come forward and it's not just with autism it's not just with vaccinations with Monsanto's uh, many people look at uh, the NSA uh, uh, I won't even go there people are so familiar with this. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm going to tell you right now, um, you know, look at, uh, okay, con confer with uh, Sherry Tenpenny, confer with Goldman, the Goldman study, I mentioned that in my book, uh, and King, you know, he does uh, scientific research in vaccinations with um, the Vaccine Liberation Army. And that's what really pissed me off, excuse my French, uh, when I got going. Uh, and Eileen Denimans, the founder of the Vaccine vaccine liberation army and she's got a campaign going on right now that says uh in spanish lamentura box uh lamentura i can't even say it, i can't remember uh the greatest lie ever told that vaccines are safe and effective they're not they're clearly not um and you know this has been scientifically proven it's been documented uh but you're going to get you know 2,000 studies versus 500 studies uh, because of many reasons. The scientific uh, community is not self-governing. You know, uh, and again, you've got people that are afraid to speak out because they're going to lose their jobs, they're going to lose their funding. Um, but, uh, you know, when it comes to the MMR, that's uh, particularly insidious uh, because that has been the uh, topic of controversy for many years. So when you get, you show me one scientific study that says, okay, we looked at 95,000 kids and nothing went wrong. Great. 
Now, as Oler and Oler said in their book, Autism, the uh, Diagnosis, Treatment, and Etiology of the Undeniable Epidemic, they made a good point. Uh, what we're saying here and what the CDC is telling us is that um, mercury, let's say anti-merosol, or vaccinations have nothing to do with autism. Okay, well, that's impossible to state. You can't even do a, enough studies and enough controls to put that together. Well, that's an, the only study that's as, an interesting point nation. because there's never been, to my knowledge, a double-blind, placebo-controlled study uh, on that, that, that can prove the efficacy of vaccines. Well, uh, you go to uh, some of the things you mentioned. It was a New England Lancet, in fact, came out and said in 2012, there's no meta-analysis done on just the influenza shot, uh, you know, of uh, efficacy in the United States. Uh, they don't compare study to study. And you can't compare uh, the synergistic uh, values of mixing all these different ingredients together. You know, you got aluminum, sometimes in case previously formaldehyde. Uh, you've got uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and, and those are all well-known and documented. Go to the National Vaccine Information Center. Barbara Lowe Fisher has been arguing this point for years. And, uh, you know, I mention a, a lot of organizations in the book, by the way, uh, 18, that uh, address some of these uh, issues. And uh, people can go to these and look. I mean, if, if you're going to have a kid, you're pregnant, you should read this book. If you know anybody that's had a shot or a vaccine injury, you should read this book. So uh, there's all kinds of documentation out there. You ain't got to find it through the normal sources. You well, the, the, I mean, I've looked at the tables. I am not a scientist, uh, but I've looked at some interesting tables. And I have, I have yet to hear um, what I would consider a um, sort of a viable argument to counter this. And that is when you look at the tables uh, for things like uh, polio and the reduction in polio cases uh, in, in places where they d developed proper sanitation. Uh, and you look at the, the drop in polio cases well before the development of the, uh, the polio vaccine. Uh, the same with, with smallpox and diphtheria and a number of other uh, diseases. We are told time and time again we're eradicated only thanks to the development of vaccines. But when you look at the tables, uh, data coming from the World Health Organization, clearly these, these uh, scourges were in, in decline well before the vaccine uh, was developed. All right, we will uh, come back. More of my conversation with John E. Micah right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Is, Johnny Micah is uh, with us here on The Conspiracy Show, the author of The Autism, or the, uh, Autism Holocaust and um, or The Autistic Holocaust, my apologies. The Autistic Holocaust, the reason our children keep getting sick. Uh, John, it is getting increasingly difficult um, for, for parents who have legitimate concerns about vaccines to, to fight back uh, and to to uh, refuse. Uh, a number of states uh, are, are um, uh, getting rid of the uh, exemptions in public school systems, for example. You cannot refuse. Uh, in, in Canada, I mean, there are, there are continuing calls to make va vaccines mandatory. Uh, I mean, how, how, how do, do parents fight back against this. The, the noose is tightening. Well, 
You're right about that. In fact, there's a, the agenda of the uh, CDC, actually, and WHO, is to vaccinate every man, woman, and child on the planet. But, you know, there are steps we can take, and it, it, it comes from the grassroots efforts. Like you're doing right now, I commend you. Um, you know, parents have to be well-educated. We call it informed consent. And in some cases, our children should not be vaccinated. Not in every case, but in some. And I'll go as uh, I'll go on record as saying, uh, not some of these laws are not enacted, and we can take measures. We can uh, we can contact our, our our congressmen, our assemblymen here in the United States, and uh, we can say we don't want to do this. Uh, and you know, we're 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 kind of dumbed down. You know, we're, we're held down, and we're told that we're stupid if we don't get these vaccinations. Um, well, I disagree. We got to educate ourselves, and I, I spent ten thousand hours doing that, self, and that was the benefit of the book. And you know, we got to know uh, what are we dealing with? What's the definition of autism? But recognize, and how do we recognize in our own children? And how do we know a vaccine injury? And uh, you know, what risks are there for our children? What goes into our children? We got to spend more time on this than we do buying a car or a house, for God's sakes. These are kids. And uh, I didn't have that benefit, and um, you know, you know, I'm sorry I didn't. But you know, there are many people that do, and uh, many people having children that do. So, uh, do you have any thoughts on the on the Gardasil uh, vaccine? Oh, there's problems with that. And again, just go to go to something I listed about National Vaccine Information Center. This has killed people. You know, some of these vaccines kill people. And, and some of these vaccines, when, when parents uh, take their baby in for a baby well visit, end up dead. And the parents end up, uh, you know, uh, Child Protective Services comes in and they charge them and they end up in prison. There's cases going on. There's, there's parents sitting in jail right now because they went to a baby well visit. Documented, okay? You don't hear about these things. You don't hear about the fact that these things cause regressive autism. You know, you're not going to hear that. Nobody's going to tell you that. You know, but it's there. The information is there. And, um, you know, it, it's really sad, Richard. It's sad. And it, it, it hardens my heart. And I cried when I listened to the last uh, committee hearing and when I did some research. And, you know, uh, uh, my wisdom falls on deaf ears at many times. And it, it's like, you know, don't cast your what is holy before the dogs or put your pearls before a swine because they'll trample them under your feet and then turn around and attack you, you know. Some people aren't receptive to this kind of information, and they get ostracized. So, um, you know, and that that's happens on a scientific level. That happens on many people that are far smarter than I and have far more influence than I do. Um, and, you know, it, something needs to be said. Something needs to be brought to the attention of the American public and, and people everywhere. What's happening in, in, in Washington? Do you foresee a time when there may be some sort of uh, official committee hearing on the efficacy and safety of vaccines? Or has the barn or has the horse bolted already? Well, you know, this is a battle. We're in mile two of a marathon. And uh, it's going to take a lot. It's going to take a lot from us. It's going to take a lot from uh, concerned parents. Uh, you know, and the only people, and in fact, the organizations that are listed in my book, uh, they're the only one, uh, only only organizations that really do any good for these people. 
Um, uh, and you've got some organizations that are no good. I don't list Autism Speaks in my book uh, because they're a mouthpiece for the CDC. They came out and clearly said that vaccinations have nothing to do with autism. Uh, and, and the founder of this organization, uh, uh, his daughter, Katie Wright, Bob Wright, is the founder. Uh, Katie Wright said that her vac- vaccinations results in her son's autism. And uh, she doesn't work in any of his organizations. Uh, but, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, and, and then he comes out and says, nah, 20 years of research, like you said, 30 years of research, nah, ain't no connection. I don't buy it. I don't believe it. So, um, you know, we got a big problem here. And it's, it's easy to turn a deaf ear. It's so easy to swallow what we're fed. Well, how can they, they, uh, the the vaccine industry, uh, the Center for Center Centers for Disease Control, uh, the World Health Organization, how can they come out and say uh, definitively that there is no link, either causal or correlation? Uh, between vaccines and a whole host of these other, you know, vaccine injuries, uh, so-called vaccine injuries, if they have, ah, if they- well, let's let's open up a can of worms, Richard, because I think the best we ever got from the CDC was from Karen Mitter in a 2002 hearing, uh, and this is still true to this day, by the way, that uh, and she was grilled by Burton, Congressman Burton. And uh, he said, can you tell me categorically that uh, at the time it was an issue with Thimerosal, which isn't an issue now. There's other reasons. Right, because but it's been said, removed. Can you tell me categorically that this, these, this does not cause autism? And she said, we can neither accept or deny a causal relationship, mm. which means there's a room for possibility. Um, they can't prove it. And I mentioned earlier before we got onto the break that, you know, we can't say these things don't cause autism. And I'll tell you why, or neurological disorders, or problems, or death, because you can't show me, you can't do enough studies, uh, there's no controls that you can do in a, a significant amount of, of ways to show that in every case, in every situation, it doesn't. Well, what is the gold standard? Wait a minute, the gold the one standard. time it does, right. that blows all that out of the water, all right? And there's been proven cases that it does, so that leaves a reasonable doubt. And we've got to hang on to that, and we've got to look at that, and we've got to do a little more research on why this is happening. We're not doing that. Agreed. We're not Agreed. spending the dollars to do that. Agreed. Well, the, and the gold standard, we are told up and down by researchers, the gold standard is the, uh, the, the, the blind uh, study, the, um, uh, you know, st- uh, also for the placebo effect. We're told that's the gold standard. And yet, uh, the, to my knowledge, there has not been a, a, a blind study where you have a vaccinated population and an unvaccinated population. And one of the arguments I've heard is that would be immoral uh, because, yeah. then, because then you're talking about, you know, deliberately not vaccinating, uh, you know, a, a percentage of people to participate in the study, which you wouldn't have to do that. You wouldn't deny them. You could certainly get volunteers, people, parents who've said, no, we're not vaccinating our children. Now you have your, your study group. Uh, but until such time as they, they can do that, uh, a double blind or a blind study, rather. Uh, to me, they have not exhausted all possibilities. Well, hey, listen, you're not going to get that study done ever. Okay. First of all, the a, uh, the AACPI won't allow it. The CDC won't allow it. The government won't allow it. Uh, it's a dead issue. 
you know, you'll get some studies, okay, uh, but they're not they're not going to go into every situation. They can't. You can't do all these controls. It's impossible. There's no amount of studies and, and, and controls you can put together to uh, account for everything that goes into a vaccine. Even in the Simpsonwood hearing that was held in uh, 2000, they, they came to the determination, well, maybe it's not mercury, uh, but we got to look at these vaccines, what, go, what goes into the vaccines. Maybe it's synergistic. You, you know, you've got aborted fetal cell lines in combination with everything. And uh, it was Dr. Derisha uh, uh, Deichert that established and proved that uh, based on the introduction of these things, that there was a problem. And um, she was discredited, as many people that were credited with, you know, that were right were discredited. You know, look at Wakefield, look at the Geyers, okay? They did stupid things, granted, but they didn't kill anybody, they didn't harm anybody, they didn't give anybody autism. In fact, they helped people, all right? Uh, and so, you know, we're going against mainstream here. And, and that's even with a book, okay? Look at the publishing companies. There, there's only six publishing companies that are going to run this stuff that I'm looking at. That's why Trine Day, the, the, the group that I'm working with, they picked this book up in a heartbeat. And they, they, they put thousands of dollars into this uh, with vested interest. And I got the best scientific research uh, editor in the whole country looking at this thing. And he believes in what I say. He believes in what Trine Day does. And, and so, you know, it's out there. The, the, the proof is out there. But we're not going to hear it, not unless we look. And where are we going to look? On the Internet? Where, where are we going to find it on the Internet? You know, I had to talk to people. I had to dig. Well, had that's to a good question, John. If people, people say, uh, you know, listening, you know, John E. Micah is not a scientist and he's not a doctor. Why should I ah. listen to him? Why should, I, why should we listen to you, John? How would you oh, respond? Oh, you don't have to listen to me. Just do a little digging like I did, okay? Don't listen to me, please. I'm not. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. Don't listen to me. The doctors tell you, doctors kill more people than anything on the planet, okay? I had to go with my friend to make sure he got the right part labeled with a marker where he was getting an operation. You talk about having sponges sewed into you, sepsis, you know, taking off the wrong part. Okay, the doctors kill more people than anything that we got known. And in the United States, it's prescription drugs that are administered freely by doctors, and they kill people, all right? So what do we got to do? Educate ourselves. Educate ourselves. And if you look, it really, if you take the time, again, more time than you spend buying a house or buying a car, you can find some answers. And I list all the groups you can go look at in the book to find some real answers, concrete, solid evidence. I, list, I back everything up by PubMed ID studies. Anybody can go to these studies and see the science that is done. I don't make this stuff up. It's science. Are there, science any, are there any vaccines, uh, John, that, that you think uh, have demonstrated efficacy or safety? Any Absolutely, vaccines? the polio vaccine. Now, you mentioned that earlier. But I'll go back to the Cutter incident in 1955 where that actually caused polio. Uh, and it was uh, Sox, Sox vaccine that did, that did it. Sabine came out with an attenuated uh, virus in, on sugar cube. Now, we've gone back to the other, uh, you know, the, the shot, uh, uh, but attenuated shot. And, uh, you know, they got rid of that polio vaccine that uh, uh, Sabine created because out of one every two million four hundred thousand people create it created polio the very thing it was designed to admit now the government took interest in that to the point where based on one out of every 2.4 million children it created uh problems but they haven't done the same thing with autism 
All right, listen, John, we're out of time. Quick, my mind. Quickly, John, how can we? How can we? We're out of time, John. When it comes to vaccination. Sorry, John, we're out of time. But how can people get the book quickly? Oh, listen, just go to Trine Day or go to Amazon or Kindle. Or if you want an autographed book, go to my web, not website. Go to my email address. It's J O N dot E dot Micah M I C A at ISP dot com. John dot E dot Micah at isp.com and uh, you'll get an autographed book for 1995 uh, personally autographed all right um, John and, out of time uh, but thank you so much the autistic right, thank you the autistic Holocaust the reason our children keep getting sick John e Micah and that's a trine day t-r-i-n-e day dot com all right my website richardserrett.com as always follow the truth Well, hello there, and thanks for inviting me into your home, your RV, your camper, your long-haul truck. Maybe you're driving a cab listening in. Perhaps you're listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, 50,000 watts of peace and love here in the greater Toronto area, and it carries way down into the U.S., Maine to Minnesota, Chicago, all the way south to the Carolinas. Uh, or perhaps you're listening in on one of our U.S. affiliates, the podcast at iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TalkZone.com, the, uh, the Conspiracy Show app, which is uh, now available at iTunes and Google Play. However and wherever you are listening, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, I want to begin with uh, an apology. A few months ago, I interviewed an individual about his theory that the Earth is flat. And this would constitute a huge conspiracy and a huge cover-up, of course. Uh, And I I thought the interview was actually quite interesting. And uh, now, keeping in mind, just because I have people on this program, uh, doesn't mean I endorse what they're saying or that I agree with them. However, as I say, I thought it was an interesting discussion. It had merit. And I'm game to consider and listen to just about anything. But I have limits, obviously. We have to have limits. Since that interview, I have learned that the particular individual who was on the program also happens to hold very odious views. This individual is a Holocaust denier. And that is something I absolutely will not consider or listen or give time to. Full stop. Uh, Now, this individual did not discuss this on the program, and I was not aware of it when he was on the program. Um, But it is something that he does write about. And now that I know that, I obviously regret that he was on the program. And I, I wish to apologize for that. I wish I'd known sooner, and, and, and uh, I wish I knew th- sooner. And the fact that I didn't is my fault entirely. I should have dug deeper uh, before I allowed this individual on the program. I'm just thankful that none of that nonsense was talked about on the air, nor will it ever be, while I have breath. In my body. Uh, so the, the, the program on the Flat Earth Conspiracy 
is still available in the archives at richardserrett.com. However, I have asked Elbert to take down the link to the guest's website. Uh, and it goes without saying that this person will, will, will not be on the program again. I'm sorry he slipped past me. Uh, of all the flat-earth theorists in all the world, why did it have to be him? Uh, okay. Now that we've um, put that out there, and it was important to say, uh, my brother-in-law has this uh, T-shirt. It's black, and written across the chest, in big, bold, white letters, it says, Hell was full, so I'm back. And I get, I get a kick out of that T-shirt every time I see him wear it. Now, uh, in the interest of full disclosure... The message on that T-shirt doesn't square with my understanding of hell or my faith uh, tradition. I've always believed that hell is pretty well a one-way ticket. You go, you don't get out, you don't come back. But what if there is a get-out-of-hell-free card, just like the Monopoly game, the get-out-of-jail-free card? In some religious traditions, it is, in fact, possible to extricate yourself from hell. My next guest is here to tell us all about that. She's a writer, producer, longtime member of the National Academy of TV Arts and Sciences, a member of a Hollywood Emmy Award-winning team. She was formerly with ABC in Hollywood. Her research looks into hell, death, and other dimensions and paranormal phenomena. She explains that these phenomena really exist and how they operate according to the laws of science. Psychic ability is genetic and transferred from parent to child. Humans are a part of the universe and are subject to energy fields from outer space as well as weather conditions. Human and animal ghosts actually exist and are energy patterns comprised of atomic particles held together with a north-south axis. There really are other dimensions and they, they were mentioned in the Bible as the seven heavens above us. Angels are actually with us as always and have been seen by many having near-death experiences. We'll also talk about the near-death experience. In her book, How the Hell to Get Out of Hell, Diane Morang explains the afterlife experience as detailed by Eastern religions where meditation is practiced in this life so that the soul need not experience the lower dimensions in the next. The great pleasure to welcome Diane Morang to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, Diane? Well, I'm fine, and thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Well, my pleasure. Well, how does one go from writer-producer working with ABC in Hollywood, uh, working with a Hollywood Emmy Award-winning team, into this whole field of after-death research? I think it's because um, I was very psychic at, at one point to, where I actually had to work at turning it off, and it took me about eight months because I was experiencing everybody else's life, and I really didn't have anything left for me. And my mother uh, also had psychic ability, and she was also mediumistic. And I, um, I think I was very led to do this, and I decided I would start researching. And I researched for 25 years before I began writing this book. I had to buy books from Europe that weren't even available in this country. But um, I also had to study about Eastern religions, of which I had actually known nothing. And um, I think that uh, there is enough material out there that when put together, 
uh, and written in the correct way, that it actually um, really is um, expressing to us what we need to know, especially at this time that religion is going through such a change. And uh, quite honestly, religions are going to be very happy with this material because it really does reconfirm what they are teaching. It's just that uh, I think a lot of religions have gotten very convoluted uh, making up laws for us. And um, there really uh, aren't that many laws that we need to abide by in order to get out of this dimension, which is the third dimension, and go on to the higher dimensions. Oh, Diane, that's interesting. You mentioned that. I, I want to come back and revisit that, uh, the, the idea that religions uh, should be happy. Uh, you know, they don't spend a lot of time talking about near-death experiences, and yet I feel that that is a, a great affirmation and a great uh, piece of evidence that there is uh, you know that, that that consciousness survives physical death of the body, and and you would think that they would want to use that as part of their arsenal, but they're they're very <laughs> careful not to discuss it. They step around it almost as if they're embarrassed by it. However, let me get back to something else, and that is, I mean, you were an investigative reporter. Yeah. Um, you must have been terribly conflicted, uh, or not necessarily conflicted, but very uh, hesitant to want to. You know, it, it, to talk about these things with with colleagues because you know we know that uh, by and large, in, investigative reporters, journalists, uh, the people that toil in the mainstream media, um, you know, they sort of have one particular linear way of looking at the world, and anything that sort of doesn't fit with that, they don't have a lot of time for that. Did you deliberately have to sort of keep this quiet, this aspect of your life, when you were with your? Um, with your colleagues in the, in the news business? Uh, it wasn't that I had to uh, do that. It's that, um, you know, you don't uh, discuss certain subjects with certain people, and there was more sameness in this area that was developing on the side, and so much uh, was starting to be generated about psychic phenomena and life after death and all of this. And so you relegate those conversations to those people, but now it's so widespread. I mean, it's hard to find anybody who doesn't believe in reincarnation or karma, uh, things like that. Good point, good point. Um, now, I, uh, as I mentioned, I, I, uh, I come from a, a particular faith tradition that believes that hell is kind of a one-way street. Uh, it is, uh, my, my view and my understanding is that it's, it sort of represents an absence of God. It's not necessarily, you know, eternal uh, hellfire where you're tormented and, and poked and prodded by, uh, uh, you know, the devil with a, with a pitchfork and, and um, you know, burning in a, in a fire. It is sort of the absence of God. You have rejected God, and so that is sort of the, the dimension that you reside. It's your choice. That's free will. Um, what do you think hell looks like, based on your well, research? According to what I have found, it's a really ugly place, and it has different levels to it. And there are people there who are in torment. Uh, but I do not believe that hell is forever. It may take a very, very long time for people like Hitler to get out of there or serial killers. And uh, you have to suffer everything that you did to another, even if it's an animal. And um, how does 
I mean, in, in addition to sort of reading uh, accounts and, and, and traditions, uh, Eastern traditions and so forth, talking about these other dimensions, um, did you interview uh, uh, people who had near-death experiences? Because one of the things I found is in reading the literature is it's, it's, it's full of accounts of people who see the light and experience the unconditional love uh, and so forth, and then they're told it's not your time, go back. Uh, we don't hear a lot about people who have or who catch a glimpse during an NDE of the other place. Do, have you talked to people who have had that glimpse? Yeah, um, and I'll, I'll tell you, um, this uh, material is based primarily on uh, people who have had negative near-death experiences, and it's also based um, on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which has been in use for about 2,500 years. Yes, we, I want to get around to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, but uh, the accounts of people that have had a glimpse of hell, uh, first of all, do you, why don't they get the same sort of attention as uh, the, 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 uh, the accounts of the, the other place, the heaven, uh, the, 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 the light, the, uh, the, the um, unconditional love? Why don't we hear more from the other side? Because people don't want to talk about that, that's why. And also, I guess if, if they told other people about what they had seen, you know, that they had seen hell, uh, I, other people, the ones to whom they are speaking, would probably think, God, this is really a bad person. I don't know if I want to continue this friendship or relationship or whatever, or even conversation. I mean, if this person saw hell, they must be a really bad person. All right, Diane Morang stays with us, the author of How the Hell to Get Out of Hell. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Diane Morang is with us, and she is a Emmy Award-winning writer, television producer, and a former investigative reporter, and the author of How the Hell to Get Out of Hell. I would think that would be pretty much required reading for most of us. Uh, now, you mentioned earlier the uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead, which I have not read. Um, uh, and then, of course, there is the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Are both of these tomes, these ancient works, uh, talking about exactly that, how, how to avoid that lower dimension? Um, you know, not really. I've read both of them, and I found that um, the um, Egyptian Book of the Dead uh, actually was rather obtuse. Now, I have about 13 years into the study of Egyptology, and I had considered taking a degree in Egyptology at the University of Chicago, but I decided I didn't want to be poor, so I moved along from that. <laughs> but I do choice. want to interject at this point that the full title of the book, it's very lengthy, is How the Hell to Get Out of Hell, Other Dimensions and Psychic Phenomena. Yes, thank you. And, yeah, and um, if you would like, I can go into something about what is in the various dimensions. Well, there are how many? Uh, I mean, theoretical physicists are now saying there may be as many as 11 or 12, I've read. Uh, yeah, Kaku is saying that. Yes. Uh, um, what it is is um, uh, that there are uh, actually, um, uh, supposedly there are uh, 10 dimensions and that they are subdivided into 7 to 49 uh, subdivisions. And, um, and also, um, you know, about getting um, out of hell, it really depends on what level uh, you go to. And let me begin by explaining that in 1984, the superstring theory in physics uh, postulated that there were the ten dimensions. 
And, uh, yeah, I know uh, Ms. Yukaka was saying that there are 11, and he may be very well right, uh, because we didn't have, you know, CERN uh, at that time. And uh, Buddhism has, uh, has taught the same thing, and that the dimensions are uh, subdivided, as I said, into 7 to 49 other levels. And the 10th dimension has 20 subdivisions. Uh, by the way, we are in the third dimension, uh, with the two dimensions below us being varying levels of uh, hell, purgatory, and limbo. The seven dimensions above us are the seven, uh, demen- uh, seven heavens about which St. Paul spoke in the Bible. Uh, dimension four is what we know as the Christian heaven. Uh, dimension five uh, does not have any earth-type construct. It is described as a deep, radiant, black void-like outer space, and sometimes with stars. Uh, the individual exists there only as mind, and thought there is telepathic. Uh, there is also a chance to reincarnate. Now, dimensions six, seven, eight, and nine also have no known construct uh, to which the human mind can relate. And it was at this point that uh, Gautama Buddha refused to give his followers any information because he thought it would only confuse them. That's interesting. Uh, that's. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say you mentioned um, the Christian heaven, and it seems to me there's something in Revelation uh, that, uh, and to me, this speaks volumes about the the um, existence of hyper dimensions um, because in revelation it says the heavens receded like a scroll the sky was split apart like a scroll uh, and you think of a scroll being sort of rolled up but when you un- unroll it obviously it reveals this whole other you know space that that uh, and 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 I've heard theoretical physicists describe hyper dimensions like a scroll you know, that wouldn't surprise me uh, because we are just really learning about this scientifically. And I think that science is going to do more to bring people back to religion than anything else. And um, also, uh, you know, th- this has been taught really by the Eastern religions for uh, 2,500 years. Uh, and even in ancient Egypt, Hermes Trismegistus, the great myth- uh, mystic, um, he refused to... to um, give his followers any information about the higher dimensions. And uh, probably it was because the human mind has a problem comprehending infinity. Um, What I heard, and I think this is just a rumor, I really don't believe this, but other people listening may have heard this uh, just recently within the last few weeks that um, CERN started up, and I presume a lot of you people know what CERN is. Absolutely, yes. Switzerland. Yes. Yeah, the uh, the, uh, big accelerator there and that they shut it down because they started seeing ugly faces appearing in what they were doing. I've been hearing this rumor. And, you know, I don't know if it's true or not, but um, if it is, then what they have done is that they have opened a corridor to a lower dimension. And um, I will just kind of digress here for a moment, but back in the early 1970s, I was called in to investigate this really horrendous haunting I mean, it had to be the worst that you could possibly ever heard of. It was definitely demonic, and people were killing each other. Oh, my. And the whole, it was a whole neighborhood was being haunted. And it had, I think that it had to do with these power installations that were nearby. And I mean, there was a lot of heavy-duty power there. And my personal opinion, and this, I mean, this is just my opinion, and I believe that what had happened was that somehow a corridor to a lower dimension had been inadvertently opened 
and this is what was causing these horrible hauntings and these murders. Now you've got my attention. Well, you've had it from the get-go, but now <laughs> where, where, tell me more details about this haunting that you investigated. Okay. Um, it uh, was, um, oh, let's see, as I said, it was in the early 70s, and I was called there by one of the families. Uh, now, this suburb, I was told, was built on the Illinois Prairie in 1950. At one time, uh, this had been Indian country that was used for encampments and parleys and was crossed by the famous Potawatomi Trail. Uh, what happened was this. The family that called me in consisted of the parents and two very intelligent teenagers. Uh, they moved into a corner townhouse at an L-shaped intersection. They had bought this house from a family whose 17-year-old daughter had died of hepatitis in a hospital. Now, remember, she, she died in the hospital, not at home. When the new family moved in, they gave their own daughter the bedroom that had belonged to the deceased teenager. Uh, the family told me that the room felt unhappy. Uh, this lasted for about a year, and then it turned cold. Uh, it remained cold for four years, and the family instinctively shunned this room. The daughter told me that she didn't even like to change her clothes in there because she felt like someone was watching her. The room was on the second floor, and they said that sometimes the family dog would stand at the bottom of the stairs and bark up at nothing. Uh, the daughter said that one day when she was home alone on the first floor, she distinctively heard someone run across the floor above her. A dresser drawer could uh, be heard opening, and it sounded like uh, someone cleared their throat. Now, uh, across one of the intersection streets, uh, a family moved into one of the houses, and one of the parents supposedly murdered their infant. Now, that family moved out. Another family moved in to the same house. The lady in that same house stabbed her husband to death. Two different families, two different murders in one house. Wow. Wow. More. Three houses down from that, the lady of the house committed suicide. At that same intersection, but across the street, the family moved out after they were awakened one night by the screeching of their cat, who was on top of the dresser. They could hear footsteps coming up the stairs to their bedroom, and then two glowing red eyes appeared hanging in the darkness of their doorway. Well, they turned on the lights and searched, but they didn't find anything. But it didn't stop there. They were awakened another night by the sounds of a party going on in their house. They could hear people talking and laughing and glasses clinking, and it, was, it seemed to be coming from the next bedroom, which they knew was unoccupied. The owner of the house got out of bed, and he uh, told me he went down the hall, and he could still hear the party. But as soon as he opened the door, the sounds of the party stopped, and um, the room was dark. He checked outside. Uh, he checked later with the neighbors. No one had a party. No one heard a party. This kept occurring always at 4 o'clock in the morning. Now, the witching hour can take place at any time of the day or night. The house next door to them was also having problems. Their dog started barking in the middle of the night, and then something crashed into the portable TV in their bedroom. They, they searched, and they, too, found nothing. Uh, it was not a one-time event. Another night, the lady of the house awoke, and the rocking chair was rocking with no one in it. Now, down the street on the same block, a young couple who I also interviewed was watching TV one evening, and it was just an average evening when all of a sudden a very large, very heavy glass ashtray floated off the coffee table, 
flew across the room and smashed on the floor. Two blocks away, another tragedy. This time, the lady of the house stabbed her husband to death, stabbed the dog to death, and then committed suicide. And by the grace of God, the children escaped out of the house. Oh, my Lord. And, and this is all happening within weeks? And, and, well, I don't, I think it was over a period of a few months, but it was all in the same neighborhood, within like two blocks of each other, two or three blocks. But most of it was all at this one intersection. And uh, now going back to the original family who moved into the corner house at the L-shaped intersection, their hauntings hadn't stopped either. Uh, they would often hear knockings and footsteps, but these would occur only when one member of the family was at home. But it was to the point that their next-door neighbors, with whom they shared a common wall, could also hear this. And then, uh, as I said, what I found is that this neighborhood is adjacent to large industrial installations, and plus there are two nearby radio stations and a string of high power lines supported by, you know, of course, large metal structures. So you've got a tremendous amount of energy here. And again, my theory is that it trapped the ghosts and that it also possibly, and I say possibly, uh, created a corridor to another dimension. Now, that's what I believe. I could be wrong. I have no proof that it did so. So how did it uh, stop, or did it? It, it, uh, it? it eventually just kind of petered out. But I will tell you that people were selling their homes and moving out without even telling anybody that they were going. I think one family moved out in the middle of the night. And, and, and then the people I know, um, they um, put up with it for a while, and they moved to another suburb. So this, uh, this portal, uh, possibly, your theory, opened up by mm-hmm. uh, you know, perhaps these radio transmitters or some industrial installation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what dimension was it? Was this the astral plane that it was accessing? It was just lower pits of hell. And I'll, I'll tell you something else that's interesting, because a lot of people know who uh, Robert A. Monroe was. And um, uh, he could perform astral projection very easily, except that when he was being tested by scientists who put him in a Faraday cage, which is a mesh metal enclosure that screens out transmissions, but which is charged with a strong DC current, after he separated from his physical body, he could not get out of the cage in his astral body because of that electrical field. And when the researchers turned off the current, he could get out. And he had the same uh, predicament when he astrally projected and found himself positioned above a a street with his movement restricted along the magnetic field of high-voltage power lines. And again, you know, um, that's um, what my opinion and belief is. Um, Whether or not all of this power activity is disturbing the mental processes of the nearby residents um, of that suburb, I I don't know. And I also do not know if any scientist has done any study on that type of situation. But, um, you know, this is what I think possibly could make these stories that we're hearing coming out of CERN now uh, as uh, believable. But I don't know. Um, I just would have to have a lot more proof that what is going on uh, with CERN, uh, you know, is... Uh, uh, that's 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 really happening. Well, I, I would ha- I'd have to have something more in the way of documentation. Sure. Well, we I want what I want to broach when we come back is is um, sort of a, a maybe a, a scientific explanation or a theory as to what ghosts are uh, or w- whether we are in fact talking 
about the souls of the departed or whether we're talking about some sort of a demonic uh, entity when people talk about a haunting and, and a ghost. Uh, are they, in fact, seeing, uh, you know, a... a, a, a um, a loved one's soul or uh, someone's soul, a human soul, sort of trapped on this plane, or is there something else afoot? Diane Morang is with us, the author of How the Hell to Get Out of Hell, and we'll uh, t- talk about that and the Tibetan Book of the Dead and much more. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Hey, welcome back. Diane Morang is with us, writer, producer, and the author of How the Hell to Get Out of Hell. Now, these uh, apparitions that people uh, see, uh, are we, in fact, uh, experiencing uh, an interaction with the soul of a departed person, a human, or are we talking about a demonic entity, or are they, uh, is it a combination? When people experience a haunting, what's happening? Well, it could be a combination of things, but first of all, let's uh, address what they're actually seeing. Um, we know that every uh, thing that is alive has an energy pattern that looks like us in detail. It's made of ionized excite, uh, excited electrons and protons. Um, for some people who haven't um, had uh, a science classes, an ion is an electrically charged atom or group of atoms. Electrons are negatively charged particles forming a part of all atoms. And protons are the elementary particles found in the nucleus of atoms. Now, this energy field is polarized, which holds it together as a cohesive unit, and the poles point to the two magnetic poles of the Earth. These energy fields are colored, and the colors change with health, emotion, and mood. They react to magnetic fields, sound, light, and color. They will lose energy under conditions of exhaustion and anger. Now, researchers have photographed this field, and when they photographed amputees, it shows them with a full set of limbs. And Russian researchers who worked with the moment of death showed that sparks would shoot from the body until they were no longer able to photograph it, but their biological field detectors then registered new force fields nearby. And so what we're talking about here is our ghost, and we carry around our ghost just as invisibly as we carry around our skeleton. And since we are part of the universe, we react to the universe, and changes in the universe can cause changes in our energy patterns. So are we talking about an, 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 our astral body? We, yeah, well, uh, there's actually a number of different bodies, according to uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, and also, uh, people want to know a lot from me about animals and um uh, also, animals are psychic, but uh, animals do have uh, ghosts also, and people will tell me that um, they have had experiences uh, with their pets after their pets died, and uh, additionally, uh, people who have reported uh, the, um, uh, the going through the tunnel and meeting the light at the end of the tunnel, they will also encounter animals going through the tunnel at the same time, and Sometimes, if they had a pet with whom they were very close, the pet who has died before them will come to meet them. All right. Now, when you have a ghostly encounter, are you looking at, I mean, is this simply the envelope of that person, or does it have, uh, in other words, you're looking at the, uh, you know, this collection of atoms, but does it have consciousness? Well, see, that's just it. You hit on a really, really big point, and that is, we don't know 
if that has taken the mind with it. We don't know if it has consciousness, but there are a lot of instances where these things have, have reacted uh, to people who uh, confront them or that they have confronted. So um, w- whether that has the mind with it, if that is the soul, um, I don't know if we really have that. Um, there, is, um, there are about five different uh, bodies, according to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, that we have, and this is just one of them. I mean, we have our physical body, we have this body, um, and we have other bodies uh, that also um, are involved in this. And, um, I mean, I can go through this process with you as to what happens at the time of death. Yes, we do need to do that. And we will, we'll, we're just about, this is a short uh, segment, so we'll do that on the other, <clears throat> excuse me, on the other side, because we need a, a little bit of a good chunk of time to discuss sort of the mechanics uh, of what happens to the soul, if you will, at the time of death, and then how how we can get out of, of hell once uh, there, if that's uh, sort of uh, where we're headed. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, first of all, uh, we just got a minute here, but w- w- how do we know? Uh, one of the things, I always caution people against, you know, using uh, certain divination tools like Ouija boards, because I, I you know, why, why tempt fate? I, how do you know you're not being deceived when you believe it's your great uncle Waldo coming through and, and moving the planchet around the board? How do you well, know that you're not dealing with some sort of a trickster or, a, 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 you know, one of these denizens of, the, uh, of one of these hell planes? Uh, St. John said in the Bible to test the spirits, and so you can ask them, um, well, uh, tell me something about our neighbors uh, in one of the houses that we lived in, you know, in uh, one of our neighborhoods there, or tell us uh, something about that was in a house that we grew up in. You can test the spirit like that, but mostly you're going to pick up um, very errant spirits, and uh, a lot of them can either be stupid or they can be malevolent. Um, and actually, I think you get a very small percentage of uh, the real thing. All right. We will uh, pick up on this most enlightening conversation with Diane Morang. How the hell to get out of a hell? Right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. All right. Uh, Diane Morang stays with us. How the hell to get out of hell? All right. Let's uh, uh, spend a few moments and talk about uh, sort of the process. What happens to the soul at the time of death? Okay, well, first of all, we have to preface it with um, the validity of the near-death experience is that it has been experienced throughout the world for thousands of years with similarity by people of different cultural and religious backgrounds. Now, since brains are usually in the throes of death when this occurs and experiencing oxygen deprivation, the brain is disorganized. At this point, it cannot manifest coherent hallucinations. These are coherent experiences. Now, to answer your question exactly, during actual physical death, a process takes place which is referred to as the dissolution of the great chain of being. The dissolutions take place in this order. First, the body into the mind, which is the physical death. During the dissolution of the ordinary uh, mind associated with the physical body, there takes place a series of events which are further dissolutions of four essences or drops. The white essence which is inherited from the Father is found at the top of the head. This is presumed to be the enlightened mind. 
The red essence, which is inherited from the mother, is found at the center of the navel. The third essence is found in the middle of the heart chakra and contains everything of the present lifetime. It dissolves before the soul begins traveling the dimensions, and this traveling is called the bardo experience. The fourth essence is found inside the third one and is considered indestructible through eternity. This includes the journeys of the soul through the cusp periods between incarnations. It also includes the incarnations themselves and through the attainment of enlightenment. At the point where the third essence releases the fourth essence, consciousness stops. Now the mind dissolves into the soul, which is the life review and judgment upon meeting the light at the end of the tunnel. The soul then dissolves into spirit, which is the fourth essence, and this dissolution is both a release and a transcendence. Here is where the Bardo experience begins. The mind, soul, id, whatever you want to call it, enters a realm of projected imagination. Now, this is important. This projection is the reflected image of the state of your soul. The teachings of reincarnation are that the soul transmigrates unless it is enlightened. And for liberation to happen and the cycle of reincarnation to stop, the soul must dissolve into spirit, recognize the higher realms, and realize that it has a pantheistic existence. But this happens after enlightenment has been reached by the accumulation of virtue and wisdom and the absolute has been experienced. Those are really important things. The pantheistic nature can best be expressed as the bioplasmic energy, which is what we talked about is made out of uh, excited electrons and protons, and which is in all living things and is in fact the same essence as our ghost. And this is what we capture in Karelian photography. Yes, exactly, and which is simply part of the entire field. And here the soul will realize its higher nature is spirit. Now, reincarnation can either be by choice or be enforced. If reincarnation is in order, then the inverse process now takes place. The spirit becomes soul, soul becomes mind, mind becomes body, and this is the point where there is no remembrance of what has transpired. And um, do you know how to... um, want to know how to get out of all of this? Well, yes, uh, but first let me just ask you then, why do certain, during this process, why do certain uh, uh, individuals seem to get stuck on this plane, which is why we are able to perceive them as ghosts. Yeah, you know what? I'll tell you what. That oftentimes happens uh, because of the way a person died. If they died uh, in a violent manner, um, if it was, you know, by murder or a terrible accident or something like that, uh, what will happen is that they really don't know that they're dead. And that uh, will uh, that will help them to stay here where they shouldn't be. But it's interesting because animals will stay around their owners, and I've had some very interesting stories about that. Uh, stay around their owners? You mean even in death? Yes, yes. And I've had a couple of people who've told me the same thing. Sixty uh, percent of all people who own pets have their pets sleep with them. And uh, particularly with dogs. And what will happen is they'll feel the the dog who has died jump up on their bed and walk up to the place where they usually sleep next to them. 
And right, right. In, in other words, the, the pet in the afterlife has chosen to remain on this plane to be next to its owner rather than participate in this transmigration of souls. Well, yeah, and, and not only that, but the pet, the pet also may not know it's dead. And it will probably dissolve very slowly. I know my dog uh, had to be put to sleep, and it was just horrific. They tell you this, this big lie that, oh, it takes five seconds and they're gone. My dog fought death, and it was terrible. Even the vet tech was crying, and oh, I was boy. hysterical. And um, my dog, I will swear this on the cross of Christ, my dog came back to me four days after she died. She was with me for two weeks, and I heard her leave. And I don't care what anybody says, I'd swear to it under oath in a court of law. That's, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, I'm sure, resonating with a lot of people uh, who've had pets. I've heard many of those types of stories. Okay, because we're tight on time, uh, let's get into the Tibetan Book of Dead. And um, if we want to, uh, once we pass, uh, first let me work this in very quickly. Uh, this whole notion... Uh, the, there's a, there was a movie uh, called 21 Grams. Uh, the idea is that uh, scientists have discovered that when someone dies, the moment of death, their body weighs exactly 21 grams less because the soul, once it leaves the body, happens to weigh 21 grams. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I've read that too. And um, I really am not too familiar with that study other than the fact of the end result that was published to the general public. And it's entirely possible because at this time, we just don't have enough scientific knowledge, you know, to prove all of this. Okay. But um, it, it's, it's certainly a possibility that is out there. All right. Now, if you have lived a rather... Um, Dissolute. <laughs> yes, you have, you have not behaved yourself in this, uh -huh. uh, to put it lightly. Uh, so is the idea here, the suggestion is that even at the moment of death, there is a, there is a way um, that you can escape going to hell. Well, you, you, have to, you still are going to have to go through, um, you know, your life review. Uh, but um, the thing is, is that there is a flash that takes place um, during the death process. And that is kind of like the light at the end of the tunnel. And whatever happens, make sure that you do not turn away from the light. Now, Whitley Strieber, who you probably know as the, uh, the famous UFO person, oh, yes. he associated the light that he saw with a UFO experience that was extremely negative. But this has nothing to do with UFO experience. This happens to do with the death and the death of the physical body. Because um, I believe that physical death is like uh, having an old car. And your body is the old car, and finally it's not going to go on any farther. And you step out of that old car, and that's your real self stepping out of the car. But um, what you have to do is don't turn away from the light when you see that light. Because if you do, that will send you on this, what you, is called the Bardo experience, where the soul has to travel these lower dimensions uh, before it can uh, get to uh, where it is supposed to go. 
So that's the key is, is uh, that we always hear that, right? Walk towards the light. Go towards the light. We hear ghost whisperers, uh, for example, uh, who are cleansing a house, telling the departed souls, you know, go towards the light. Um, so if you don't, if you don't walk towards the light, you've got to sort of work your way through all of the other planes of, uh, the planes of existence in order to find your way back. Is that the idea? Well, this is true. And according to the teachings of Tantra and Vedanta and yoga, uh, we have five bodies, you know, which we talked about. Right. And um, uh, there are a minimum of six things that can occur to the spiritual body when physical death ensues. And what can happen is it can become earthbound, as we were just talking about. And this can happen, as I said, if a person dies in a depressing or lonely situation or in a horrific or violent one. And uh, again, under these circumstances, they do not know they are dead. Um, then uh, the other thing is, is when the physical, or, um, the physical body dies, the astral body disintegrates, and it disintegrates into the walls of the room in which the person died and also into the furniture, you know, and, and the, wall, the, the ceiling, the floors, whatever. And by sheer chance, someone uh, may show up who happens to be the right catalyst to activate the energy. And in my uh, conversations with various Catholic bishops' offices throughout the United States, uh, they informed me that they will not send someone out for hauntings, but you can ask a local priest to uh, bless the surroundings. Uh, but uh, there are some very powerful sounds called Shakti Mantras, which will immediately eliminate that energy, and that would have to be done by a Hindu who knows how to do that. Right. Now, check uh, the yellow pages. <laughs> but there are people, Diane, that deserve a fast track to the, uh, you know, uh, the furnace room. Uh, Hitler, we mentioned, obviously. Stalin. Uh, there are people that deserve to be there. Why, you know, why would they have an opportunity, why should they have an opportunity to escape that fate? They don't. See, eventually, uh, they have to go through uh, the lower dimensions. You know, it may, for some reason, whatever that room uh, reason is, that they get trapped somewhere, um, that will only be temporary, and eventually they will have to make that journey uh, through the, um, the lower dimensions. And, uh, uh, you know, besides uh, the, the lower pits of hell, uh, dimensions one and two, we are the third dimension, um, are supposed to be uh, the dimensions of hell, limbo, and purgatory, with hell having uh, various degrees of intensifying misery, um, or as, as I said, state, you know, the religious teachings call it the pits. And uh, the, the people who have had the near-death experiences where they saw that, they say it's a very real place, and that the horrors of uh, the lowest dimensions are reserved for those with um, sexual perversions, sadists, psychopaths, drug addicts, alcoholics, suicides, murderers, mean, unloving, greedy people, criminals, and other serious sinners. And uh, there have been reports that these people are unceasingly attacking each other and are in constant torment. And uh, there is um, also a level where um, the uh, chakras, particularly those abused, must be burned off. And this is believed to be so painful that the souls there clamor to reincarnate, to stop the burning, because reincarnation affords them the opportunity to reverse their karma without pain. But, uh, the, you know, I mean, they're going to get, you know, what they deserve. And uh, that is in part of it. And before we close here, because we only have a few minutes, is this is only one part of the book. The book is on Amazon, and uh, it's called How the Hell to Get Out of Hell, Other Dimensions and Psychic Phenomena. 
there's a chapter on Egyptology, a chapter on ghosts, a chapter on angels, a chapter on religion. And there's three uh, chapters on the science of psychic phenomena, how it is um, a passed from parent to child. And it depends on where a person's senses are on the sensory spectrum. People who have high frequency um, uh, sensory uh, uh, situations, uh, they are the ones who are considered psychic. And people who are at the low frequency, and they have really experienced some very dreadful things, and it, it's not their fault at all, but they have been misdiagnosed, and some of these people have even been put into mental institutions. Oh, my. Listen, Diane, we, we simply have to have you back on the program. That will solve a lot of this uh, time I'll constraint. I'll be happy to we'll come back. We'll do a part two and three. Diane Morang, a great pleasure to meet you, and thank you for spending some time with us. And thank you for inviting me. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My thanks to Sebastian and uh, Tim Spreen in the other room, Albert Vinzel, story producer, back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along as part of that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I am coming home. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.